We are reading again from John chapter 3, verses 22 to chapter 4 and verse 3. These are God's words. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he was tarrying with them and was immersing. Now John also was immersing in Enon, near to Salim, because many waters were there, and they were coming and being immersed. For John had not yet been cast into prison. Arose then a questioning among the disciples of John with a certain Jew about purification. And they came unto John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou hast borne witness, behold, the same immerseth, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, Not one thing is a man able to receive, unless it is given to him from heaven. Ye yourselves to me bear witness that I said, I am not the anointed, but am sent before him. The one having the bride, the bridegroom is. Now the friend of the bridegroom, the one standing and listening for him, with joy rejoiceth because of the voice of the bridegroom. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. Him it is necessary to increase, me now to decrease. The one from above coming above all is. The one being from the earth, from the earth is. And from the earth speaketh. The one from heaven coming above all is. What he hath seen and heard, this he beareth witness. And his witness no one receiveth. The one having received his witness hath set his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent, the words of God speaketh. For without measure he giveth the Spirit. The Father loveth the Son, and all things hath given into his hand. The one believing in the Son hath life eternal. The one now not obeying the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and immersing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not immersing but his disciples, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. These are God's words. Please be seated. As we wrap up the first three chapters of John, you'll notice that if you keep reading from this point, the action continues immediately in verse 4 without any kind of a break. And yet, this last part of chapter 3 up to verse four, uh, 3 of chapter 4 is also a kind of turning point. We talked last time about the idea of rhyming ideas. And here at the, ch- the end of chapter 3, it's not difficult to hear many such rhymes with earlier parts of John's gospel, especially with the beginning of chapter 1. There is a natural reflection here in chapter 3 with themes that John began in his prologue. The symmetry between the beginning of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 3 creates a kind of a bookend so that chapter 1 opened this rhyme and now chapter 3 concludes it which makes it feel like there is a kind of tying up going on, a closing off of the first part of John's gospel. This is not to say that we should draw a sharp line between chapter 3 and chapter 4. We should not do that any more than we would draw a sharp line between the first few lines in the verse of a song and the ones that come after it. It's not like chapter 4 is something entirely new. Rather, the end of chapter 3 ties up some themes to make room for some new ones. To give an example, 
chapter three here is a little like the third line of a song. For instance, if you take when I survey the wondrous cross, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. Now, loss obviously rhymes with cross, and so it closes off that part of the verse, but the verse also continues. The verse isn't over. The third line isn't marking some kind of a break that we're supposed to see it as a conclusion. So if John's gospel were like a song, then we have reached the end of the third line. It really does conclude something, and yet it is not an ending, because there is still another rhyme that hasn't yet been concluded, as we'll see when we look at chapter 4, although we're going to take a little bit of a break before we get there. What are the rhymes that John is tying up here? You may just... I said that there were rhymes. You have to take my word for it. No, you, you should look and see for yourself. Let's compare the beginning of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 3. Chapter 1, verses 1, well, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Chapter 3, verse 34, for he whom God hath sent, the words of God speaketh, for without measure he giveth the Spirit. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 11. The light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Chapter 3, verse 32. What he hath said and heard, this he beareth witness, and his witness no one receiveth. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 12. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But as many received him, and to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name. And then chapter 3, verses 33 and 36. The one having received his witness hath set his seal that God is true. The one believing in the Son hath life eternal. The one now not obeying the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Chapter 1, verse 13. They were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Chapter 3, verse 27. No, one, not one thing is a man able to receive unless it is given to him from heaven. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There came a man sent from God, whose name is John. The same came for witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. And chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 26. And they came unto John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou hast borne witness, behold, the same immerseth and all are coming to him. And finally, chapter 1, verse 15, John beareth witness of him and crieth, saying, This is he of whom I said, He that cometh after me is before me, for he was before me. And then chapter 3, verse 31, the one from heaven coming above all is. So there are numerous themes which are not stated in exactly the same words, but are repeated quite obviously. For instance, just as John the Baptist featured heavily in the beginning of John's gospel, now he features heavily again. The same theological ideas that John introduced in the beginning of his gospel are repeated alongside John the Baptist in very similar ways. So I want to dwell on this today because it is an important feature of Scripture that very few people are taught. And it actually ties in somewhat interestingly to what uh, Jared said to us about Psalm 17 today as well. I'll get to that in a minute. We're taught to listen to what Scripture says, but we're not generally taught to listen to how it says it. 
And this is very strange when you stop to think about it, because the structure of Scripture reflects the mind of God just as much as the content does. So we should be paying careful attention to both. And what we see here in John is an application of the principle that I called musical resonance when we looked at the Lamb of God in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? you remember what musical resonance is? Let me refresh your memory because it is a very important concept to reading scripture well. You don't have to call it this. This is just the name that I give it, but just the idea of it is very important. Um, being able to see the connections that the Holy Spirit placed there is very helpful when you have this idea. So the, the connections that God put into scripture are, are not just trivia. They're not like there to give you something interesting to look at or like a, a puzzle to tease out, ooh, I found something cool. Mark's favorite, whoa. They're really there for other reasons. and <laughs> they're, they're cool because of the real reasons that they are there. And one of the most practical reasons is simply this. The more connections that you see, the better you understand the relationship between the ideas of Scripture. And so the better you get at putting the whole picture together, and the better you get at figuring out the mysterious parts, the parts that are hard to understand, because you can see how they connect to things that you already understand. So musical resonance, to refresh your memories, is one version of a very fundamental principle for interpreting Scripture, which is called the analogy of faith. And the analogy of faith simply means that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture teaches us how to read it. Since God is one, and he breathed out the Bible, therefore the Bible is one. It is a unified whole, and it is meant to be read as a unified whole. We should not expect that, no, we should not only expect that the later parts explain the earlier parts, but even that the earlier parts were written knowing that the later parts would come. And so the earlier parts can also explain the later parts. Musical resonance treats this whole as if it were an arrangement of music, it is like a great symphony with many different themes and motifs, or like a movie soundtrack, where you've got many different pieces of music that all fit together because they are all built around the same story and they all use the same basic melodies, or they use versions of those melodies. When we liken the words and concepts of scripture to music, and we consciously look at them as if they were music, it helps us to see many patterns that were not obvious on the surface. When words are repeated, what does that mean? When you see similar ideas being repeated, even if it's not using exactly the same words, what does that mean? What is the pattern that God wants us to hear? We've seen many motifs that are repeated in chapter 3 from chapter 1, and many of them are, are ideas that John has developed in one way or another since chapter 1, especially when the, he has this discussion with Nicodemus. But as he expanded them, now he contracts them again to the summary statements, much like the ones that he gave in chapter 1. So it goes from a summary statement in chapter 1, and then there's lots of discussion that expands on these ideas, and then there are more summary statements at the end of chapter 3, which is really just a, a variation on the time-honored method of preaching, which is to tell them what you will tell them, then to tell them, and then to tell them what you told them. But not everything is just repeated. 
Many of the ideas are rhymed between chapter 1 and 3 in order to emphasize them. They are repeated so that we will notice and pay attention. And repetition like this is also useful for helping us to understand how these summary statements are fleshed out in the rest of the text. Because if we know that there is this common structure where you've got an opening summary and then there's lots of stuff that explains it and then there is a closing summary... That means that we can more easily identify which parts of the text are explaining what ideas. And obviously this is important when the ideas are complicated. But not everything is just repeated, as I said. There are a couple of ideas, especially, that are developed between chapter 1 and chapter 3. Some sort of a change happens, some sort of increase takes place. And again, this is like music. What starts out as a simple few notes at the beginning of a soundtrack can end up being a very complex melody by the end. Or what starts out being played on one kind of instrument can end up being played on a different one. So you can imagine, for example, in a film, you might have the hero's motif. It's like the the theme that always plays around the hero. And when the beginning of the film, when the film opens and he's in his childhood, the motif might be played on a recorder. He's not yet grown up. The music reflects this. But by the end of the movie, often he has gathered a team around himself, and he has defeated the villain, and so his theme might be played on a trumpet or a horn, with many different instruments backing it, in order to show that he has matured and become strong and is victorious and is no longer alone. And these are the sorts of analogies that we should have in mind as we read scripture. And certainly there are many of these kinds of musical resonances in John's Gospel. A very simple one, which we've already hinted at, is in chapter 1, baptism is a key part with John the Baptist, and here in chapter 3, it is also a key element. But now in chapter 3, it is Jesus who is doing the baptizing, although it is not Jesus himself, but his disciples. We see that John's influence, which was powerful in chapter 1, so powerful that John was the witness to Jesus, John's influence is diminishing, and Jesus's is increasing. And this is used to teach us about the nature of Jesus compared to John, and indeed the nature of Jesus compared to all of us. And it brings it alive for us and makes it real for us in a way that simply telling us about how great Jesus is would not achieve. Last time we looked at the story and we kind of unpacked it a bit and worked out what it meant, what was going on. We filled in the gaps and we saw what exactly was happening. It's a very commonplace kind of dispute, a very relatable event. And this makes it more concrete to us instead of just abstract. It's not just telling us an idea. It is giving us a story. But this is not the only theme that is developed from earlier in John. If we move past chapter 1, we immediately get to the wedding at Cana. Now you might think this is not developed in chapter 3. The wedding at Cana is a whole long story, and there's nothing about a wedding here in chapter 3. Okay, John mentions bridegrooms, but that's not developing the story of the wedding at Cana, right? Well, John certainly is not intending to tell us more about that particular wedding, and he isn't even intending to tell us necessarily anything about weddings per se, But the wedding at Cana was a story that meant something. And the fact that John now returns to a similar theme by using this little analogy of the bridegroom certainly should make us ask if there is a related meaning here. Is John 
hooking into that previous theme in order to move it forward or give us a deeper understanding. And I think that that is undeniably the case. That is what he is doing. Consider the parallels between the wedding at Cana and our current passage. They are not insignificant nor incidental. In chapter 2, there are water pots placed there after the Jews' manner of purification, specifically mentioned. In chapter 3, there arose a questioning among the disciples of John with a certain Jew about purification. In chapter 2, Jesus instructs the servants to fill the water pots with water to the very tops. It's specifically, again, it's an odd way of putting it, specifically stated, to the very tops. Then to draw water out again. Here in chapter 3, we find him immersing people in water, I would argue, to their very tops, and then drawing them out again. And we also learn this strange little detail at the end of the section in chapter 4, verse 2, that it was not Jesus himself who was baptizing, but rather his disciples, just as the servants filled and drew water, bringing out something changed and better. So Jesus' disciples, who are like servants, immerse and draw people out of the water, bringing, it, <coughs> excuse me, bringing them out changed and better. But then there is a shift in the parallelism. In chapter 2, when the head of the feast tasted the water that was now become wine, he called the bridegroom. And he said, every man setteth out first the quality wine, and when everyone is drunk, the lesser. But thou hast kept the quality wine until now. When we come to chapter 3, the bridegroom is focused on again, but this time, who it is has changed. Jesus is no longer in the background, helping out the bridegroom anonymously, since as he told his mother at the beginning of his story, his hour has not yet come. Now Jesus is the bridegroom. And the comparison between him and John, the way that the the two are compared, John is diminishing, Jesus is increasing, suggests that Jesus is also in some way the wine. John is the old water because he of all people in the Bible is uniquely associated with water. He is John the Baptist. But the one coming after him is greater than him and has the spirit without measure. Jesus is the wine, the fire water, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. When we looked at chapter 2, we saw how the wedding at Cana points beyond itself to a greater fulfillment. And that this is actually a kind of embodied prophecy, speaking of the new covenant that Jesus is bringing in and how much greater it is than the old. The new covenant is a covenant of wine, while the old covenant is was a covenant of water. And incidentally, if you look at what is coming up in John, where he talks to the woman at the well and talks with her about which mountain it is right to worship on and who her husband is, you'll notice that the themes of chapter 2 are coming up again. Chapter 2 has the marriage, and it also has drawing water at the marriage, just as water is drawn out of the well. And that story then leads into the cleansing of the temple, which is the place of worship, of course, which is another theme which is picked up in chapter 4, where should we worship? So John is continuing with this kind of rhyme scheme as he moves into chapter 4. If John is not intending to develop the motif of the marriage, then the parable here that he gives about the bridegroom is kind of puzzling. What I mean is it seems like a very random analogy for John to use. 
especially considering he's already talked about weddings. It seems very unlikely he would randomly pick that. But if he is riffing, as it were, on the theme of marriage to move it forward in new directions from chapter 2, then it makes good sense. If Jesus is now the bridegroom, then that has significant connotations. Any Jew knew that Israel was commonly called the bride of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Consider Isaiah 62 verses 4 to 5 and Jeremiah 2 2. So Isaiah 62, thou shalt no more be termed Abuza, forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be turned, termed Semema, which means desolate. So these are, these are names, which is why they're translated as names. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, my delight is in her, and thy land Beula, married, for Yahweh delighteth in thee. And thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. In Jeremiah 2, thus saith Yahweh, I remember for thee the loyal love of thy youth, the love of thy betrothal time, how thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. But I suppose the most famous example of the symbolism is in Hosea, where Hosea must take an unfaithful woman as a wife to symbolize the continual covenant breaking of Israel to her husband, Yahweh. This is actually very interesting because look at Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak unto her heart. And I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor, for a door of hope. And she shall make answer there, as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, my husband, and shalt call me no more Baali, my master. For I will take away the names of the Baals out of her mouth. And they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the heavens and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the land and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in justice and in loyal love and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to be in that day, I will answer, saith Yahweh, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer with grain and with new wine and with oil, and they shall answer, Yisrael, God sows. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have pity on Lo-Ruhumah, not pitied. And I will say to Lo-Ami, not my people, Thou art my people. And he himself shall say, Thou art my God. This is a, a fascinating passage, especially to me, how God makes the covenant with the beasts uh, and the birds as we saw him doing in Genesis 9 with the covenant of Noah. But the point that I want to draw out here is that Jeremiah takes up this language in Jeremiah 31, where he speaks explicitly of a new covenant that God will make with his people. Not like the one that they broke, a new and better eternal covenant, 
which is the very thing that the wedding at Cana was also pointing to. So the way that John develops this theme of marriage strengthens its connection to the promised new covenant by making Jesus himself the bridegroom, who is indeed Yahweh. Now, we will look more at this when we get to John 4, because, as I mentioned, the rhyme scheme does continue. But notice for now how John weaves in another motif from chapter 1 to strengthen this one. He harmonizes one theme with another, laying in a second melody, which is the reiteration of how Jesus is from above. He is from heaven. Here it is a dichotomy between above and below heaven and earth. This is chapter 3. While in chapter 1, the same idea is expressed more in terms of before and after. So verses 14 to 15, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John beareth witness of him and crieth, saying, This was he of whom I said, He that cometh after me is become before me, for he was before me. So before and after above and below. Even though Jesus is the best wine that was saved for last, he is nevertheless the better wine that came first. He is above John because he is before John, because he is the word of God and the son who always existed in the bosom of the father. He is not merely from heaven in the way that angels are from heaven. Rather, he is the revelation of God made flesh. John ties these themes together and sums them up, playing them off each other like harmonies that magnify and reinforce each other. The bridegroom of the Old Testament and the word of Yahweh of the Old Testament are drawn together into a new song about Jesus and the new covenant. But he does not do this merely for artistry. He doesn't do it just because he loves poetry. The Holy Spirit does not inspire this amazing arrangement of ideas just so that we may admire it even though it certainly is beautiful and worthy of admiration, but also so that we may imitate it. He writes these things for our instruction to emphasize the stark distinction between Jesus and other men so that we can see that it is the same distinction as that between God and creation. He writes these things ultimately so that we may know who Jesus is and that Everything that we do would therefore glorify him as he deserves. John is, uh, sorry, Jesus is greater than everything, which is why he must become greater as John the Baptist becomes less, as we become less. It is simply a recognition of our proper places, our proper roles. One does not glorify the creation, one glorifies God. But is that the only application? Remember our place and glorify God? That is a good application, of course. But is there not something more practical to take away? What is the full application? How shall we do this? You have appreciated my last couple of sermons because they had very clear application and I followed a clear story. I didn't give you abstruse ideas like I've given you today that you had to think about this. I'm not sure I'm getting it. So I revealed last time something of human nature, which gives you insight into your own hearts. And then I gave you some very plain ways about what to do with this knowledge. 
how can we grow in holiness? What are the do's and the don'ts? What must we flee? What must we pursue? These are the sorts of things that we ask when we come to the text. And some of you are more or less interested in symbolism and biblical theology and rhetoric and hermeneutics and these sorts of things. Some of you are more or less capable. That's the gifting that God has given us. Some of you are children and really struggle to wrap your heads around it at all. And even if you are capable and even if you are interested, these things strike us as kind of arty, not practical. They're sort of ivory tower stuff, right? Not really blue collar stuff. They may be interesting, but they do not help us to understand why we act as we do and how to act better. They're the icing, maybe, but where is the cake? Well, I do have another application today, but it is actually to gently reprove this kind of approach to Scripture, this overly practical approach. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that practical application is not something that we should look for. But I do want to challenge you to consider that understanding the text of Scripture itself, how it works, and how to read it, is of the greatest practical importance in a believer's life. Because our duty, our very purpose, is to be conformed into the image of Christ. The only way that we can be shaped into that image is through receiving the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is most directly and objectively communicated to us in the scriptures. It is through reading God's word that we come to know his mind and be shaped into the same image. And this is why God calls us not merely to read his word, but to meditate upon it day and night. Joshua 1.8 says this, the Hebrew word that is used there for meditate, we looked it up in family worship the other day, comes from a root meaning to coo or growl or mutter. It means to always have God's words on your lips, under your breath. A better word than meditate, especially today when that term is so laden with Eastern spirituality, would be to muse. So Joshua 1.8 says, This book of law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt muse thereon day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have Good success. Now consider the introduction to the psalm, Psalm 1, in which David describes the blessed man. He says his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law doth he muse day and night. This man is not merely memorizing facts. He is not merely learning rules. He is pondering. He is contemplating He is studying and mulling over. He is chewing his food. He is chewing and digesting every word that God has given him. And what is the result? Have you considered that Psalm 1 is a description of the very thing that produced the Psalms themselves? David muses on God's law, the Torah, the law of Moses, and he plants the law in his heart, And he waters it through continual reflection upon it. And in due time, that law grows into music and issues forth back out of David. It issues forth now more glorious than before in the form of song. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that our lives should be consumed with analyzing the text of Scripture without ever coming to the point of asking what it demands of us. Hopefully, I, I don't need to even say that. Hopefully, it's obvious by now that that would be antithetical to everything that we believe at Redwood. The blessed man brings forth his fruit, his good work, in its season. But I do want to urge you that the very first thing the text demands of us is to study it, to take it in as God actually gave it, rather than as if it were a modern newspaper or a nonfiction story. The very process of planting, the very effort of cultivating the word in our hearts through musing upon it, changes us in ways that we do not fully understand, and ways that we cannot even see the effects of until much later. And it's therefore my duty as someone charged with teaching the text to draw your attention just as much to the form of Scripture as to its function, to be equally concerned with helping you to see the patterns and the themes and the connections as the instructions and the requirements and the implications. I must be helping you to think through how God has spoken to us as much as to think through what he has said. Because the word itself is a seed that is planted in our souls and we cannot be utilitarians when we come to scripture. Its form matters. Its structure matters. The medium is part of the message. Heaven forbid that we do at Redwood what so many churches do, which is treat the text as if it were essentially invisible, essentially irrelevant, entirely transparent, and purely a vehicle for facts or commands. That is not true to Scripture itself. The text is God's speech. And every part of that speech is therefore important. It would be like listening to a song and asking only what the lyrics meant and not what the music did to you. Or to give another analogy, imagine if I hooked up this tablet to a voice synthesizer and had Siri read out the sermon instead of me actually preaching it. That is a little like what we do if we approach the text of Scripture as nothing but a collection of propositions. You know what a proposition is? Like a statement, a piece of information, a bunch of data to be stored in our brains. John tells us later that the sheep hear his voice, that is the voice of the Lord Jesus. And this doesn't just mean that they listen. It doesn't just mean that they pay attention. It means that they recognize they know the sound of his voice. They know how he speaks. They know his cadence, his timbre. They know the way that he thinks. To know the content of God's thoughts, what they are about, what they require, is essential. But it is only one half of what it means to hear him. If we only receive what the text is straightforwardly saying... And we see no meaning or import in how it speaks. We are only receiving one half of its blessing. Think of it this way. We can summarize all of Scripture's teaching into more efficient formats, right? We could create the systematic theology, um, or, or the, the, the ultimate systematic theology. And, and then we could reduce it down to a Cliff's Notes version with cheat sheets. And if we put our minds to it, we could distill everything that God requires us to do and believe into a fairly short book but suppose we did that and suppose that book was absolutely accurate it was without any errors it would be a truly valuable resource would it not yeah 
It would. Very valuable. Imagine giving that to a new believer. Fantastic. But could it replace Scripture? Of course not. But why not? For the same reason that the description of what happens in a story is not the same as hearing the story told. For the same reason that reading the lyrics to a song or reading the music on a sheet is not the same as hearing the song. It is only in Scripture that God speaks, and only in Scripture that he therefore shapes us with that speech, just as he shaped the world when he spoke to it in the beginning. So I would exhort and encourage you not to leave a sermon like this, which is abstruse and hard to follow sometimes, wondering if there shouldn't have been some application. I'm not saying that there couldn't be applications that I haven't drawn out. I'm not asking you to overlook my failures if I did not apply the text well. But I want you to see that learning how Scripture works is itself a crucial application. Just as we saw with Psalm 17 today, we saw this is how a man prays. We weren't just looking at what he prays. We weren't just asking, what, what was David doing? We were asking, how does this apply to us? How does understanding the shape of this prayer change how we think about prayer and how we pray. Some parts of scripture lend themselves to holding up a mirror to our behavior and instructing us in the do's and don'ts of holiness. And some parts of scripture lend themselves to contemplating how God thinks and communicates and sees the world and how we ourselves may imitate him in that thinking. And some parts do both. I think Psalm 17 is actually a good example of both. But neither is more important than the other. And I believe that the only way we will truly reform the church today and become invigorated for the work of preaching to a lost culture in order to reform that culture is through loving and practicing both of these things. If we do not learn to think as God thinks, we can never fully image him or act as his sons in the world, for it is the head that directs the body. And of course, if we do not learn how to act as God acts, we cannot really claim to know what he thinks, for the body reflects the head. Both of these things are necessary to sanctification. It is good to have a longing to know how to act like God. That is a longing to be sanctified, a longing to be made holy. But we must also have a longing to know how to better think like God. That too is sanctification, making our minds more like his, making our minds more holy. Holy does not just mean righteous. Holy refers to everything that God is. We become more like everything that God is when we think his thoughts after him. But it is often much more difficult work because at least figuring out the right behaviors and trying to do them is simple. It might require lots of effort, but it's relatively easy to understand but learning to listen to scripture like music or taking the effort to understand key words in the original languages or struggling to hold together these connections in your mind it is not simple it is legitimately difficult work and at times it can be despairing work because God's thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts that even when he condescends to speak to us in language that we can understand we can barely understand most of it we can barely even see most of what he is doing in the text without being shown by someone else. And then when we try to explain it later because we were so amazed by it, it, it's gone again. You think I don't experience this? I experience this constantly. But I do not want you to lose heart. 
God gives us teachers for this purpose. Remember James 1 verses 5 to 6, which says, But if any of you lacketh wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all liberally and reproacheth not. He does not reproach you for not being good at this. It shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. For he that doubteth is like the surge of the sea driven by the wind and the tossed. Brothers and sisters, let us ask for wisdom to understand God's ways, to better know God's thoughts, to be able to contain within our tiny sinful hearts the vast and exalted wisdom of his ways. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is above us. Thank you that it is high and exalted and that we have to reach and grasp and struggle just to understand even some of the basic things of it, things that you and your saints in past times have sometimes taken for granted. Thank you that you give wisdom liberally and without reproach to all who ask for it. We ask that you would give us that wisdom, that you would help us to understand your word, to be able to see all of the things in it that you have put there, and to be shaped by it so that we may become more like you, being transformed into the image of your Son, who breathed it out through your Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.